Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. Hey, buds. Welcome back to the show. This is day nine of the 12 days of Funk Myths, the re-release of the most popular episodes of all time. We're doing this as a way to celebrate 1 million downloads. We are 1 million downloads strong, and I wanted to release all of the fan favorites and shock of all shocks, intermittent fasting was one of the top most downloaded episodes. Are you surprised? I'm certainly not. For our giveaway on Instagram, head over to Instagram, find me at the functional nutritionist linked up in the show notes. I am giving away my carb compatibility project that starts in January. You'll hear me mention that a bunch of times on today's show. So you'll see why it's really important. We don't want to just steamroll right into fasting. We kind of have to prepare the body and the carb compatibility project is one way to do that. The other giveaway is beauty counter products, hormone happy personal care products and cosmetics. I recently attended a seminar virtual, of course, uh, all about metabolic health, all about diabetes, all about insulin resistance, all the topics of today's show. And one of the most surprising things for me was just how much endocrine disrupting chemicals that we find in fragrance, in our skincare, in our personal care products, in our makeup, in our lipstick, in our shampoo, in our conditioner have a dramatic effect on our metabolic health, on insulin signaling pathways, on our weight. So once again, food is super, super important here but other things factor in as well. And how we approach health here on this podcast is to approach the whole person. We're looking at all facets of health. So if you want to enter to win, head over to Instagram, share this podcast with your family and your friends. And again, just a reminder, the Carb Compatibility Project starts January 4th. I run this twice a year, so make sure you get in early 2021. All right, here's the show. This is the episode that I've been sitting on for a while, the intermittent fasting episode. I know you want to know about it. We're going to talk about it all today. I had this queued up for a couple of, maybe like a month ago. I don't even know. Time doesn't matter anymore. It's all mush. But, um, you know, then COVID happened. So it didn't seem super relevant. I just felt there was more pressing things to address on the show. And now we're finally coming out with it, which actually seems pretty timely because there's been 
so much stuff coming out showing the comorbidities with COVID-19 complications and deaths. And what we're really seeing is that there's this underlying metabolic dysfunction in those who are suffering the most. A recent peer-reviewed observational study, which was published in the Journal of Diabetics, Science and Technology, showed that diabetics and those with hyperglycemia, so that's high blood sugar, had a four times higher in hospital mortality rate and increased length of stay. So the diabetes, uncontrolled high blood sugars, insulin resistance, a lot of the stuff we're going to get into today would be considered metabolic dysfunction. And so, you know, this is, I'm not talking about this as a way to undercut the severity of the virus or, um, or any, or downplay any of that. What I'm saying is that we do have to pay attention to what makes people more susceptible. It's something that I talk about all the time on this show, that inner terrain. What does your inner terrain look like? How, what is your ability to fend yourself off against pathogens? Because again, I will say it time and time again, we're never going to win the war on microbes or on viruses. It's really up to us to make sure that we have a robust inner terrain. Um, and so metabolic dysfunction and how your metabolism runs and all of this super duper plays into it. And so we have to, um, we, we can't always just deal with exactly what's in front of us, right? We have to think more preventatively. Okay. Well, what do we do marching forward? How do we take care of ourselves? So we're going to get into a little bit about, about that kind of stuff today. I know I talk a lot about low blood sugar, a lot, a lot, a lot about low blood sugar, but the other side of the spectrum, the high blood sugar, the insulin resistance picture is is not to be ignored. And quite frankly, I'm seeing more and more of it. The more people I work with, the more I see that side of the coin. And this is especially true for my men, uh, uh, menopausal woman, perimenopausal, postmenopausal. We're going to get into that a little bit later on. Um so we got to pay attention to this. This is important stuff. Whether or not you choose to intermittent fast, this is this is still really good stuff. What else? The Carb Compatibility Project starts May 11th. I got a lot of awesome bonuses this round. Um, I'm adding a brand new module that's going to address and go into way more depth about all the stuff we're going to talk about on today's show. I'm going to include labs that you can ask your doctor for that will be covered by insurance. Um, I want you to understand the difference between optimal and normal levels. So if you, you know, if you get blood work done at the doctors and they're like, it's normal, eh, we might want to do a little bit of a deeper dive on that. We're going to talk about the link between blood sugars cortisol in that visceral belly fat, the link between insulin resistance and your gut. And because it's so important, this gut health, I even threw in my entire what the gut two and a half hour gut health workshop. So that's another bonus. Uh, We'll talk about functional medicine approaches to high blood sugars and insulin resistance, and then specific dietary approaches to focus on. So that's all going to be a bonus module for all of you guys. And one more bonus, I'm just hitting you from every angle. We have weekly workouts now. So that's provided for my good friends at Blaze Yoga and Pilates and Steamhouse Yoga and Pilates online work, workouts. We're going to do the interval training, weight training, yoga, Pilates. It's going to be awesome. This May group is going to be in fuego. So I hope you join us. All right. 
I'm going to encourage you to share this episode with any of your friends who are fasting curious, anyone that's interested in in intermittent fasting or is currently trying intermittent fasting or people that are talking to you about intermittent fasting. This is going to be like a really extensive deep dive. And in fact, I might break it up into two episodes. I have 30 pages of notes to pick through today. Um, a lot of that is resources, but a lot of it isn't. So if I get to the 45 minute mark and I still have a long way to go, I'm going to break it up into two episodes just so it's just a little bit easier to digest. Um, but do feel free to share this episode. Share, share, share. Um, anybody that you know that has type 2 diabetes, who has high insulin, pre-diabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, high blood sugars, anyone going through menopause or post-menopause, share this episode. It's going to be rich with content and resources for your friends, for your family. Okay? So when I do talk about intermittent fasting, because no doubt you've heard me talk about it before on Instagram, here on the show, it's usually to highlight the downsides of it. Um, And it's not because I have anything inherently against fasting or because I believe that nobody should do fasting. It's because it's such a popular thing right now. And when something gets so popular and when everybody's talking about something, what happens is that everyone thinks that they should be doing it. All nuance, all context, all reason and common sense goes flying out the window. I try to be the voice of reason to counteract the nonsensical stuff we hear, which is why while everybody is talking about why intermittent fasting is so great, you'll hear me say, yeah, but. Because the truth is, fasting is not appropriate for all. It is not the panacea that everyone wants it to be. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Um, I've used actual lab examples on Instagram of the negative hormonal effects of fasting for some women. So I can't podcast, it's all audio. I can't show you visuals. So that's what I use Instagram for is to show you like, Hey, see this lab. Here's what's going on. This woman was fasting. Here's her hormones responding negatively to the fasting. Um, and there's there you might kind of depending on what channel you follow um, or channels, you might be hearing even more talk about intermittent fasting for um, immune health. So people are really promoting fasting as a way to sort of fend yourself off against the virus. And it's like, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe that's true for some people, but it's definitely not true for all people. In fact, you could push yourself even into uh, a more of a stress response, which is going to impair your immune system. So it's not, again, it's not going to be black and white. In the field of nutrition, we have to make space for all truths. It is true that intermittent fasting is detrimental. And, 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 and it is true that intermittent fasting is beneficial. Oh my dear God, what do we do with that information? Both truths can coexist here. It's not an either or situation. It's an and also. And what's kind of crazy 
is that both truths can coexist within the same human being. There might be times, depending on your stress levels or your exercise routines or your hormonal fluctuations, where intermittent fasting works really well for you. And then there might be some times when intermittent fasting is a really horrible fit. So that's kind of the name of the game today. Talking about how can you assess if there's if if it's if it's appropriate for you or not given your unique context um i posted on social media oh goodness it it was while your hormone revival was running and this is the last week so probably a month or so ago um i had analyzed two sets of hormone labs for um, two different ladies in my program. And for one person, I was recommending intermittent fasting. I was saying, you should try it. And for another person, I was specifically telling them to stop intermittent fasting, right? So of course, when I shared that, everybody had lots of questions and I started stockpiling those questions um, into one place so I could answer them here on this podcast in one place. So the big questions that really came through were, who was it for? Like, who should try it? Um, when is it therapeutic? Why is it therapeutic? What are the benefits or potential benefits of intermittent fasting? Does it work for women's bodies? I love that question. And then somebody else said, is it just another diet culture tool? Ooh, that's a good one, right? Um, it's that last question that really has prevented me from addressing the benefits of intermittent fasting on the show. As somebody who struggled with eating disorders for 13 years and went through hell, absolute hell to recover, I'm hypersensitive to restriction recommendations. And I'm still seeing a massive amount of restriction in my clinical practice. I know that I have a lot of people... Uh, that listen to the show who have recovered from eating disorders or who might be going through the process of recovery, that that whole dance, two steps forward, maybe a step back, that whole struggle. Um, and so I know that talking about fasting might be a trigger for somebody, and I never want to perpetuate the starvation model. Obviously, if you've been here through all 99 episodes up until this point, you guys get that. You know that that's not my jam. That's not my jump off. But I, I, I also don't want to restrict myself from putting out information. Um, I want to always showcase all sides of the information of information where it's appropriate. And ultimately, it's not my responsibility to micromanage how people consume and perceive my content and material. It's like me saying, well, I can't give this information because they can't handle it. And that's not true. I trust that you can handle this information. And I'm going to trust that you can determine whether or not it applies to you. Is this for you or is this not for you? That's your responsibility to self-audit. Use the information and run it through your own body. Hey, I know we are absolutely inundated with information. And so we all have to build up some sort of internal checks and balances to run this information through ourselves and to have the ability to assess, does this apply to me? Is this right for me? Is this information that I should take or leave? Because not everything you hear is going to be for you. You know, just take what you need, leave the rest. 
And there's a massive difference between doing these practices because they are therapy for a health condition and doing these practices because we've fallen victim to diet culture. And that's what I want you to determine for yourself today. Based on the information I provide, does intermittent fasting sound like appropriate therapy for your body or is it just more of the same diet bandwagon? So let's go. Let's start with the basics. What the hell is it? What is it? True fasting is where you limit the ingestion of all food, all forms of calories, and all metabolites. So this is any xenobiotic, anything foreign to the body that the body has to metabolize. So hey, guess what? This includes black coffee, herbal tea, electrolyte powders, vitamins, and supplements. Um, Dr. Sachin Panda is really a leading expert in the field of circadian rhythm research. And he says that any xenobiotic will start the digestive circadian clock, even if those things don't contain calories. So we're talking about true fasting here. And I think I probably just bummed a lot of people out right out of the gate who thought they were fasting, but maybe actually weren't fasting. Um, because this is certainly different than the way many people are practicing fasting. And the experts are kind of mixed on this. Some say as long as there's no calories, it's fine. And then some say that if you're keeping it under 50 calories, it's fine. You're still going to get the effects of fasting. And, and to be clear, when I say effects, I'm talking about the therapeutic health benefits. I'm not necessarily referring to just weight loss. Uh, as Kathy Biase said on the cancer episode that we did a couple of months ago, fasting is not a weight loss thing. Weight loss can be a byproduct of fasting, but it's not really the primary driver when we're talking about it from a health intervention standpoint. Um, I will talk about a study in a little bit that showed big improvements in health biomarkers regardless of weight loss, right? So weight loss is not always the thing that we're chasing um, from a health perspective. So there is a difference between intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating. Intermittent fasting is complete fasting for 24 hours, whereas time-restricted feeding is limiting the daily period of food intake. You're basically short, shortening your eating window. So what many of us are talking about when we refer to intermittent fasting is actually time-restricted feeding. For the sake of today's show, I'm going to continue to call it intermittent fasting, but I just wanted to point out that distinction there. And what most people are talking about when they say intermittent fasting is really a compressed eating window where you limit your food in caloric intake to a window of 12 hours or 10 hours or eight hours. And the research is kind of all over the place in terms of methods because there's so many different ways to utilize fasting. You can do alternate day fasting. Um, you can fast for two days every week. You can restrict your calories two days every week. Um, even with time-restricted eating, there's different studies on different times of the day. So there's early time-restricted feeding, which means that you start eating 
early in the day, like say 7 a.m., and then you would stop eating around 3 p.m. So you don't put anything into your system beyond 3 p.m. And I'll share research about that in a little bit. I think what most people are doing when they practice intermittent fasting is they skip breakfast or they start to eat later in the day, like 11 a.m. or noon. Maybe they start they start eating. So I guess my point here is that there's a lot of different ways to approach this, really like with anything in health and nutrition. And you can argue that there's benefits for all the different ways. So I think if this is a practice that you want to try out, you need to think about what really makes the most sense for you and what feels the best in your body. And I'm going to talk about very specific ways to approach this towards the end of the show or maybe in part two, depending on how long this runs. Um, So we have the fasting mimicking diet. This is one way to go about it, um, which you might've heard of. It's gained a lot of momentum and popularity in the past couple of years. And then they, I'm pretty sure they highlighted it on the Goop Netflix show. I think that Gwyneth and her her pals did it. So that's going to even, you know, increase the popularity there. It's called the Prolon Fasting Mimicking Diet. It's a five-day meal program available for purchase. So you do purchase specific foods to eat, kind of like Jenny Craig back in the day, right? Um, And it mimics the effects of fasting, but without having to completely abstain for food for five days. Um, It's extremely restricted calories for a five-day period. Okay, so that's what the fasting mimicking diet is all about. And a lot of really great research um, to support that. If you go to their website, um, there's a lot of research there that you can check out. Then there's actual fasting, again, going 24 hours or longer without food. This can be extremely therapeutic. It goes beyond the scope of my expertise. It's nothing that I would do clinically with a client. I'm not going to get into it here just because... I don't like to talk about things that I don't know about because I think that's irresponsible and inappropriate. Uh, But Dr. Jason Fung is a Canadian nephrologist, and he's the leading expert or a leading expert on fasting. So you can check out his information. He really pumps out a lot of uh, info. As a kidney doctor, he obviously saw a lot of type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and obesity. So... um, that's his whole jam. You can check him out if that fits your picture, but please, if you're listening to this show and you have a history of eating disorders, or you're just one of those people that have convinced yourself that you have like five extra pounds to lose, I'm not sending you to Jason Fung to do like a long, uh, long-term fast to, you know, to fix your metabolic dysfunction. That's that's for a very specific segment of the population. Um, so again, self-audit, run the information through yourself. Does this apply to me or not? And then we have a fat fast, which is, this was really made popular by the bulletproof coffee trend where you're... Um, I mean, there's other ways to fat fast. It doesn't have to be with coffee, but I would say this is the most popular one where you're adding fat to your coffee. Um, and that instead of eating breakfast, you're doing, um, you're doing more of a fat fast. So you would add anywhere between one to four tablespoons of fat. Um, you could also add some protein. So a lot of people like to add collagen to this. This seems to be really, um, from a stress perspective, which we'll talk about in a bit, how, um, how fasting can trigger stress in women and, uh, really kind of play around with their thyroid health and hormones. Um, 
adding some protein in seems to mitigate some of those negative side effects. Um, fat fasting works because it doesn't raise blood sugar or insulin. So insulin really responds mostly, it responds to, to anything you put in your pie hole, but mostly to carbohydrate. So if you're getting no carbohydrate when you're doing coffee and fat and maybe some protein, right? And so this can often pair well with somebody who really wants to be in ketosis. They want to be in ketosis. They want to reap the rewards of a ketogenic diet and nutritional ketosis because this will keep you in ketosis despite the calories. You're not getting a blood sugar spike. You're not getting an insulin spike. So this would be a good approach um, for that category of people. It can keep leptin from being depleted. So leptin, we'll talk about later, it's our satiety hormone. It does a lot of other things and big interplay with mood and hormones, um, which again, we'll talk about. But uh, we, we know it as our satiety hormone and it's triggered by having our own body fat. So it's released if we have body fat stores or when we consume dietary fat in the diet. Um, So the pros of doing a fat fast, like a bulletproof coffee, is that it can keep things more stable than just a plain fast. It can keep leptin from being depleted when When leptin gets low, when leptin is depleted, it tells the brain that your body is in an underfed state. And this is what has the impacts on thyroid, on sex hormones. And with the fat fast, some degree of autophagy can still happen without ringing the alarm bells in the body. And what I'm talking about, well, you'll, you'll learn what autophagy means in a little bit. I will still say, though, that I've seen hormone reports from women who are using a fat fast as a practice, and it did still have um, negative consequences. So keep that in mind. It's not a, it's not a, a sure, you know, a surefire fit for everybody. There are some cons. There are some draw, drawbacks of a fat fast. Um, and I will, I'll say this now, we're going to get into who should avoid fasting altogether. But there is, because the, the bulletproof coffee thing is is such a popular approach, um, and in case you don't make it to the end of this episode or part two, um, doing this can easily put you into an undercarbed, underfed, over-caffeinated, and over-stressed state. Even if you're getting ample calories through the fat, you might be missing out on some micronutrients and phytochemicals and antioxidants. And just leaning on caffeine instead of eating a full meal can really tweak some things in the body, okay? So it's a good fit for some, not a great fit for everybody. And then there's a protein fast, which is limiting your, it sounds like you just fast on protein, but you actually restrict protein. You limit your protein consumption to 15 to 25 grams a day. This gives your body a full day to recycle proteins, which will help reduce inflammation and, um, uh, and, and, and it prevents any muscle loss while you're doing it. It's hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. I'm not going to have any pro tips because it's just a very challenging thing to do, but you could look into whether or not that's appropriate for you. Now, those are the different 
ways to attempt or different styles of fasting that you might hear about. But why, why would you do it? What is it good for? Um, taking a break from eating essentially mimics a more ancestral pattern of eating where food scarcity was a big thing. I mean, you have to think about historically, what were the biggest threats to survival? Not having enough food was the big one. It was one of the biggest. So, um, we did, again, our genetics are sort of used to going longer stretches without food. So that's kind of one of the arguments for fasting is that, well, our bodies, you know, have always been equipped to do this. When I hear that, when I hear that as a, um, as a reason to try something, uh, well, our ancestors did it. We also have to take into account that modern day looks very different than it did a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, 5,000 years ago, right? We had big major stressors running away from a lion, a tiger, a bear, oh my, right? Finding food. Those are big stressors, shelter, right? Now we don't have those big massive stressors. Um, we have little like micro bursts of stress all throughout the day, consistent, chronic, low grade stress all the time. Traffic, you know, uh, blue lights from screens, having a screen in your face all day, not being outside, uh, financial stress, too much on our plate, you know, being a caretaker, all of these things are just, we're just inundated with these, these low grade stressors. So to say, well, we just need to look to what our ancestors did, you know, a few thousand years back. Well, okay, maybe, but also different lifestyle too. So it's not comparing apples and apples. Um, what I think is really interesting, there is, there's a doctor, uh, Dr. Wilson, who, uh, does a lot with thyroid and, um, he sort of, uh, coined the term Wilson's temperature syndrome, which is, um, basically low T3. And as we've talked about on the show before, T3 is our active thyroid hormone. It's the, the, the hormone that does most of the things in our body. And so if we have low T3, your lab work could look perfectly normal. Your TSH could be perfectly fine. T4, perfectly fine. But if you have low T3, you're going to experience symptoms of hypothyroidism, of low thyroid function. Um, and what he found is that it seems to be more common in patients whose ancestors survived famine, like Irish, American, Indian, Scottish, Welsh, Russian, um, which is very interesting. Um, and I'm going to circle back around to this idea in, uh, in a little bit, but I guess my point in teasing this out is saying, okay, so maybe our ancestors survived famine, but did that do us any favors, right? Is starving ourselves the answer? Is restricting food the answer? I don't know. It's something to really think about, but we do know that there are very clear cut benefits to intermittent fasting, including improving insulin sensitivity, reducing glucose levels in the body, blood sugar, uh, reducing insulin levels in the body, can lower blood pressure, it can improve lipid profiles, and it uh, can reduce the markers of inflammation and oxidative stress. So these are like big things that contribute to cardiovascular disease, right? They contribute to metabolic dysfunction, or it is metabolic dysfunction, can lead to diabetes, can lead to stroke. It can lead to um, a, a great many things. I mean, we were talking at the start of the show, the implications that it has in COVID-19 
19 mortalities and complications, right? This is big stuff. So the fact that intermittent fasting could potentially be a tool for this is is pretty eye-opening. Now, I'm not going to, anybody that's struggling with this, I'm not going to say, hey, like jump right in, you know, come in, the, the water's warm. I want you to really listen to the, you know, everything I have to say in these these two episodes and, and assess, is this right for you? Um, there is some cool stuff as it relates to gut health as well, intermittent fasting in the gut. Um, some animal studies, there's no human studies yet, but some animal studies showed that intermittent fasting could increase bacteria richness. And that's a good thing. Um, since the microbiome plays such a large role in um, metabolic health, this is this is a good thing. Um, intermittent fasting induce changes to the gut microbiome, increased ketone formation, and glutathione metabolism, the body's main antioxidant, and an enhanced antioxidant pathways. Furthermore, intermittent fasting increased the number of regulatory T cells. So basically, it's going to lower oxidative stress. It's going to enhance antioxidants. It's going to support the immune system through the function of Treg cells. So that's kind of that's a, that's a cool study in my eyes. Um, really, what we need to do because the our microbiome works on its own rhythm. I mean, we have circadian rhythm. Our microbiome does does too. And so if we can eat and sleep at the same time, that really leads to a more healthy, rich, robust microbiome. So the timing of eating really impacts the microbiome's ability to control insulin. It determines how it produces energy. Um, so does this mean, okay, well, I have to do intermittent fasting in order to get better gut health and therefore better, better metabolic health? Well, maybe not. Maybe you just need to eat at the same time, um, exercise at the same time. Don't overtrain. Overtraining is a big stressor. Try to get to bed at the same time every night. Get enough sleep. All of those things can also contribute to a healthy microbiome as well, right? So we're not overlooking the basics. We're not skipping steps. We're not skipping the basics and jumping right to intermittent fasting. Hey, I'm not going to sleep. I'm going to eat a trash diet. Um, you know, I'm going to overtrain or not move my body at all. And then I'm just going to sprinkle some intermittent fasting onto the situation and all as well. Not how it works, okay? Yes, fasting has benefits, but you still have to be doing the fundamental building blocks, the basics. Um, another pro of intermittent fasting is autophagy, which I mentioned earlier. Autophagy essentially means self-eating. It's our natural detoxification system of our cells. So cell material is recycled, it's repaired, or it's destroyed. And this is autophagy is the body's mechanism of getting rid of all the broken down old cell machinery, organelles, proteins, cell membranes. It's a regulated orderly process to break down and recycle cellular components. We want to get rid of the garbage, right? So this autophagy is one of the ways that we get rid of the garbage. Um, because if we continue to accumulate old, faulty, broken down, crummy proteins, we can see this play out as disease states, Alzheimer's disease, 
cancer, right? So we need to have this, um, this, this detox system, this clearing out system in the body. Now, autophagy normally and naturally happens when we're sleeping. So it de- don't, you don't have to intermittent fast to get autophagy, but it, it happens when we're sleeping because that's when we're fasting, right? We're, most of us aren't eating in the middle of the night. Most of us are, we go to bed, we don't eat. Um, and so we're fasting. Now, if insulin goes up, glucagon goes down. If insulin goes down, glucagon goes up. Okay. So it's an inverse relationship between these two hormones. As we eat, insulin goes up, glucagon goes down. And then when we fast, when we don't eat, insulin goes down and glucagon goes up. And it's this increase in glucagon that stimulates the process of autophagy. Might be too many details for some of you guys, but I also know I have like a lot of nutrition geeks that listen to the show. So I'm always trying to sprinkle in the, uh, the mechanism of action where I can. Um, it can also promote autophagy in the brain, which is very protective against cognitive decline and neurodegenerative disease. That's something that really should be on just about all of our radars because it's something that is um, rising. Now, again, Sachin Panda, Sachin Panda is that leading expert in the field of circadian rhythm research, and he says that we have a circadian rhythm for calorie consumption and metabolism, the same as that we do for sleeping and waking, right? Um, meal timing can optimize liver function. It can optimize the microbiome like we talked about in a little bit ago, and it can also optimize digestion. It's good for fat metabolism, insulin sensitivity, mitochondria function, that's energy, um, immune function, microbiome diversity, and it can lower cancer risk. And Panda says that it's best to keep calories in an 8 to 12 hour window every day. Um, and it's this circadian system, this internal biological clock that might explain why the benefits of time-restricted eating appear to depend on the time of day. Uh, because all of those like glucose, fats, um, energy metal- metabolism, they're all regulated by this circadian system. So it upregulates them at some times of day and it downregulates them at others. So in humans, insulin sensitivity, beta cell responsiveness, so insulin is produced by the beta cells in your pancreas. Um, so beta cell responsiveness and the thermic effect of food are all higher in the morning than in the afternoon or evening. So this suggests that human metabolism is optimized for food intake in the morning. It's kind of different than a lot of the, a lot of the things that we hear and a lot of the different approaches to intermittent fasting, right? Um, Studies in humans show, not so not animals, now we, we've, we've moved to humans. Studies in humans show that eating in alignment with circadian rhythm in metabolism by, incre- uh, by increasing food intake at breakfast time and reducing it at dinner time improves glycemic control, weight loss, and lipid levels and can also reduce hunger. So wow, that just flipped a lot of things on its head, right? I think... The point, or not the point, but a point to think about here is 
you can find evidence of whatever you're looking to find evidence for. You really, really can. We still need that ability to run this information through our bodies, maybe try some different things on for size and say, what works best for me? Because there's definitely data to support waking up, eating a full meal, and then letting your eating taper off throughout the course of the day, right? There's definitely data to support that. And yet a lot of people do intermittent fasting by skipping breakfast and maybe they feel really great too. So what works, what approach works for your body? And ultimately the one that makes you feel the best and the one where it's not impacting health in a negative way um, is going to be the best approach for you. But something that Dr. Stacy Sims says is that I kind of get a chuckle out of this. Not eating for 12 hours between dinner and breakfast is not intermittent fasting. This is normal. We've just become so accustomed in our um, culture to eating around the clock. Food is everywhere. Many of us are overfed and we're undernourished because even though we're eating around the clock, it's low nutrition food, right? It's a lot of the processed sugars. It's a lot of the refined carbohydrates. I did a, um, I did a poll on Instagram this week. Maybe you answered my questions. Thank you so much if you did. And I was wicked surprised to see how many people, um, and this wasn't like, this wasn't a poll, like asking, is sugar a problem for you? Like I, this wasn't a leading question. People, I was like, what's your biggest health struggle? And people were like, sugar, sugar. I have a hard time giving up sugar. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So, um, and it's hard when we're eating a high sugar, high refined, highly refined carbohydrate diet. Um, it's hard to walk away from it because it spikes our blood sugar and then we get a subsequent crash. So then we feel really hangry. We feel very hungry. We feel very low energy and we're reaching for the next thing. And hey, guess what's there? It's the sugar, right? So this is one of the reasons that I created the Carb Compatibility Project to put a stop to this, kind of interrupt that process to replace the low nutrient food with high nutrient dense food. Um, and help to regulate your blood sugar so we can stop this, this vicious cycle of up, down, up, down. Um, whoops, my, one of my crystals just got, just fell over. I wonder if that's a sign. Maybe that's a sign to wrap it up. I can't, I'm going to keep pushing through. We're only at 40 minutes. So let's talk about some conditions where uh, fasting can be helpful. So specific conditions where fasting might be something to consider. Fasting and cancer. I am not a cancer expert, um, but there's some research to indicate that this could be helpful. I please, 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 please pursue this under the care of a doctor. I'm just reporting research. I have exactly zero clinical experience with this. So this is not a well, Aaron Holtz told me to do this situation. It's just presenting data. You need to take this little nugget that I'm about to give you and do your own research and also speak with your oncologist and speak with your own physicians about whether or not this approach makes sense for you. Um, it's been determined that fasting can play an important role during cancer treatment and progression through the regulation of insulin-like 
growth factor one, as well as other growth factors. It's also been shown that fasting would enhance the chemotherapy effect in cancer patients, selectively protects normal cells in organisms from chemotherapy toxicity while simultaneously sensitizing tumors. Fasting can theoretically inhibit several critical pathways in the development and progression of cancer while simultaneously causing malignancies more sensitive to treatments. For instance, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. I'm going to link to a couple of um, resources where I got that information, but I just didn't feel, um, I wanted to at least mention that on the show. Um, so this is a more comprehensive deep dive, right? Another, another place where, um, where this can be helpful, where intermittent fasting can be helpful is if you have significant weight loss, significant weight loss. We're going to talk about what that means in part two. Okay. Um, significant weight loss plus unhealthy biomarkers. And what I mean by this are markers of metabolic issues. So let's do a spotlight on insulin right now. I posted about insulin this week and some people are like, what the hell's insulin? So I'm like, okay, let's back up a couple steps. Let's talk about insulin. Insulin is a hormone produced and secreted by the beta cells in the pancreas. It directs blood sugar into the cells to create energy in the form of ATP. That's so important to note. Blood sugar doesn't just like do its, it's not just like hanging out in the bloodstream like, what's up, what's up, what's up? I'm going to do some jobs. Uh-uh, it has to get inside the cell in order to generate energy, in order to generate that sweet, sweet ATP. And the only way it can get inside the cell is by insulin. Insulin plays this massive role. It takes sugar out of the blood and it directs it into the cell, puts it inside the cell. Now, insulin resistance is when glucose, blood sugar, cannot get into the cell because insulin receptor sites are no longer responding to insulin. It kind of becomes like white noise. Insulin is being pumped out, but that it's not able to dock to receptor sites. So the blood uh, uh, glucose stays in the blood. It's just cranking around in the blood and it can't get inside the cell. Can't get inside the cell to make ATP and do its job. Insulin resistance is usually due to chronic overuse of sugar and refined carbs, right? What we were just talking about. So much of this metabolic dysfunction is comes back to diet and lifestyle. Diet and lifestyle. Diet and lifestyle, right? How do you live your life? Do you sleep? What's your stress like? Do you meditate? Do you move your body? Do you eat? good food. All of this is so gosh darn important uh, and cannot be overlooked. So how it, how it usually goes is that we eat a diet high in sugar, high in refined carbohydrates, insulin levels. So when we do this, this increases blood sugar, right? And insulin levels also increase because insulin responds to blood sugar. Blood sugar spikes, insulin spikes. So insulin levels increase in the bloodstream and sometimes, sometimes we can overshoot insulin, which can then lead to low blood sugar. So this might happen before you get to insulin resistance. What might happen is you, you know, like I eat a bagel for, for breakfast, high blood sugar, 
insulin spikes, it spikes a little too high. So it grabs too much of the blood sugar, puts it into the cells. So now we have a low blood sugar picture. So now we feel kind of like weird and shaky and, and a little irritable and like wacky, maybe headache, maybe a little dizzy. Uh, and then we get hungry a couple of hours later, right? Because we need more blood sugar. And so then we reach for the, the next high carbohydrate snack or meal. So this can go on for years. It's not a an either or. It's not either you have low blood sugar or you have high blood sugar. You can have fluctuations throughout the course of the of the day and this can go on for years and years before you hit an insulin resistant picture. Um so that's what, one of the reasons that I take low blood sugar so seriously. Like we got to get we got to address that. We can't just let that run rampant. Um, so over time, cells can become resistant to insulin. Receptor sites on cells are, are blunted from that constant exposure to high insulin re- release. Glucose can't get into the cell. So glucose stays high in the blood. Um, insulin might stay high in the blood. And so if insulin's high, the pancreas, pancreas is going to be like, well, we don't, we don't need to make anymore. So if the pancreas is going to decrease insulin production then blood sugar cannot be cleared out of the bloodstream. And this is, this leads to type two diabetes. Um, when, when glucose is just hanging out, cruising around the bloodstream, it, it has to go somewhere. It can't just stay in the bloodstream indefinitely. So it goes to, usually goes to one of two places. It's oxidized into free radicals. This is not good. Um, this is accelerated aging. This is damage to DNA, which can lead to disease and cancer. Um, and glucose can also be shunted into triglycerides, right? So this is why triglycerides will go up with insulin resistance. This is one of the things to look at. To, if, you, if you're wondering if you're part of this picture, how are your triglycerides? Are they high? Yeah, this might be part of your picture. In, in doing this, putting glucose into triglycerides is a very energy demanding step. And this is why you feel fatigued after you eat a meal when you have insulin resistance, you, I, you eat a meal and you're like, I'm really tired. I could take a nap. I need a cup of coffee. I gotta like, give me some giddy up. Um, so insulin resistance is a very pro-inflammatory state. It creates oxidative stress. These chronic insulin surges turn on inflammatory pathways and reactions in the body. This inflammation leads to even more insulin resistance. So it's a very, um, constant state of chronic systemic inflammation once you get to this point. Now, I'm just going to kind of go through some going to go through some seeing how much how much uh time we have here. <laughs> so much more to talk about. Some signs and symptoms symptoms of having high blood sugars and insulin resistance because I think it's really important. Um feeling fatigued and drowsy after meals, I just said that one. Intense cravings for sweets. Um, especially after meals, you're like, I need something sweet. And then eating the sweets doesn't relieve your sugar cravings. And in fact, eating sugar can actually make you crave more sugar. Um, craving breads and other high carb foods, constantly hungry, just really can't feel satiated. Um, getting hangry or lightheaded if you skip meals. General fatigue, just kind of feeling like, low-grade fatigue all the time, maybe some migrating aches and pains, 
needing caffeine to make it through the day because you have that fatigue, um, visceral fat, abdominal fat, if your waist girth is equal to or larger than your hip girth, that's a big one. Um, frequent urination, if you're peeing a lot, if you have increased thirst, these are signs, um, big, big, big signs that you're, you're looking at a pre-diabetic or even uh, diabetic picture. If you have difficulty losing weight, Okay. So if, you know, if you have one of those things, it, I'm not saying you have insulin resistance. If you have a lot of those things, it's something to look into. So how would you know there's certain things to look for on your labs? We're going to look for a high hemoglobin A1C, a high fasting glucose, a high fasting insulin, um, and then a HOMA IR score, that is the marker of insulin resistance that's emerging. If it's over two, it means that you're using a lot of insulin to try to regulate glucose. Now, insulin levels are not something that, that are routinely checked, but insulin is a key player before someone develops impaired fasting glucose or impaired glucose tolerance. So we really should be measuring insulin because it gives us um, a lot more information. If we're just relying on fasting glucose alone, it will underdiagnose insulin resistance. Um, so I'm going to talk about more of this concept and specific labs and markers to ask your own doctor for. That's part of what we're going to do in the carb compatibility project in that module. A little bit of a deeper dive on this stuff and, and what levels are normal and what levels are optimal. What are we shooting for? Um, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I am just seeing, as I mentioned earlier, more and more of this with my perimenopausal and postmenopausal ladies. I do, in your hormone revival, check all of these markers um, because glucose metabolism and blood sugar go hand in hand with hormones. There are there's no separation here. So when I give someone a protocol in your hormone revival for their hormones, we're always addressing blood sugar. We're always taking into account issues with blood sugar. We have to. There's again, I can't I can't fix your hormones for you if blood sugar is unstable. And when I when I realized this, when I truly understood how important this was in clinical practice, that's when I developed the carb compatibility project. I was like, oh dear, we need <laughs> we need to we need to do this. Like we all really need to be working on this. Um Insulin, one, one small example that I'll give you because so many people, um, talk about, uh, cortisol. Insulin and glucose problems can drive up metabolized cortisol. So if, if you've done a Dutch test and you've seen that your metabolized cortisol dial is high, we have to question. And hopefully whoever ran the Dutch test on you was willing to, to, to question. They're not just saying you have high cortisol. They're also saying, okay. Let's figure out why. What's driving up that metabolized cortisol? What's making your body make more? Um, and so when we when we have all the data, we can start to really put together different pieces of the of the puzzle here. Um, 
Okay, some other biomarkers that I want you to be um, aware of. This might be the time to like, you know, go look at your old labs or think about what you your doctor has um, has talked to you about because. Because here's the deal, the prequel to severe metabolic disease, severe metabolic disease being type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, it, it is really this insulin resistance picture and elevated lip, lipids. So if you have insulin resistance, if you've, if you've been told you have high triglycerides, it, the time to act on it is right now. It's not when it becomes a problem. There's um, a diagnosis called pre-diabetes. And a lot of doctors will say there's no pre-anything. You got to get that in check right now. You don't wait till you have a diagnosed disease. You you do work now. Um, so in order to be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, you have to meet three out of the following five criteria. So if you have a waist circumference of um, over 35 inches for women or 40 inches for men, because that visceral fat is its own endocrine organ, um, low HDL cholesterol, less than 40 for men, less than 50 for women, high triglycerides, anything over 150, high blood pressure, anything over 130, over 85, and a high fasting glucose, anything over 100. Um, This is a lot of people. This is 35% of U.S. adults. That's over a third of, of the adults in the U.S. And 50% of those older than 60 meet this criteria. So half of Americans over 60 meet this criteria. So you guys, metabolic syndrome is no joke. It's a massive problem. It's a very common problem, okay? By the time somebody is diagnosed with this, they're five times more likely to get type 2 diabetes, two times more likely for cardiovascular disease, the number one killer, uh, two to four times more likely to have a stroke, and three to four times more, more likely to have a heart attack. So I, I'm not playing around with this stuff. Like, right, we this is something that we all have to really pay attention to. Um, and then really there is any other situation where there's metabolic dysfunction. Um, the, these are all good candidates for thinking about not only cleaning up your diet through something like a carb compatibility project, but also maybe peppering in some insulin resistance. Post-menopause is a big one. Dr. Carrie Jones calls perimenopause reverse puberty because your hormones are so up and down, up and down, up and down, right? That's why you feel so junky. There's dramatic changes in estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, and that really is what causes the hot flashes, the night sweats, the sleep problems. Um, Estrogen and progesterone affect how your cells respond to insulin. So after menopause, changes in your hormones um, can trigger fluctuations in your blood sugar levels. It affects insulin, blood sugar regulation, hunger, satiety hormones, and you become more insulin resistant. And this this was a really big aha moment for me, honestly, in this round of your hormone revival, because I had a lot of women who were either going through the change or after the change. And I just keep, kept seeing the same thing consistently on labs. Higher insulin, high blood glucose, high A1C, um, and high metabolized cortisol. And this is exactly what's going on. So um, I had a listener write in, Diane Lamprey. Hello, Diane. She wrote, 
Um, I would love to hear more about nutrition to support your brain health in menopause. Uh, would you consider doing a podcast on this? Love the information you share. Really what I have to say is that brain health has everything to do with blood sugar regulation and inflammation. So you got to get those two things in check. Menopause, if we're, if we're talking about being more insulin resistant in menopause, this means that we have to be more hyper aware of our blood sugar, of our uh, metabolic control. This is going to have everything, this is going to make a massive dramatic impact on your brain. So um, I would recommend doing a program like the Carb Compatibility Project and maybe looking into whether or not intermittent fasting feels right for you because that can be very neuroprotective during this time. Um, some types of PCOS. Now I say some types because PCOS falls on a spectrum. Sometimes it involves insulin. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's an adrenal problem. Insulin resistant PCOS is the most common driver, um, because chronic insulin surges activate an enzyme in the ovaries that cause them to produce testosterone, which then throws off follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And this can lead to dysfunctional menstrual cycles. You can miss your periods. You can have anovulatory cycles. This can all lead to infertility. Um, but I will say how you treat PCOS is going to be very different based on what kind you have. So you have to make sure that you're doing the appropriate testing. It really infuriates me when people narrow down PCOS to a weight issue. Like you just need to lose weight. Uh, it's actually not the case in many, many cases. Um, so if you have more of an adrenal PCOS picture, or if it's really more of a thyroid thing, then intermittent fasting wouldn't be a good approach for you. But if you do have insulin resistant PCOS with that higher androgen picture, then it does make sense to follow some of this advice. Doing a low, more low carb approach may be peppered in with a little bit of intermittent fasting. Okay. So what do we do for these conditions? How do we reverse insulin resistance? We're already at an hour here. So, um, I'm going to, this is going to be the last part. This is going to be part one. I'm going to close it out. Come back next episode with part two. So let's close it out here because I do want to leave you guys with some tangible things to implement. If this sounds like your situation, you need to lower sugar. You have to lower refined carbohydrates. I know I'm the bad guy for saying this, but it's the truth. And I know this will piss some people off, but it's, it, I mean, if you could do it while still eating your lollipops, more power to you, but chances are you probably can't. So no cakes, cookies, granola bars, fruit juice, dried fruit, maple syrup, honey, anything with added sugars or sweeteners. It's just going to give, get you more of the same. The carb compatibility project would is literally my prescription for people with the insulin resistant picture with a high blood sugar picture. I don't just create programs based on what I feel like teaching. I've tried it before. It's a failure. Uh, I create programs based on the areas where there's a massive need for them. And the CCP is actually written into all of my hormone protocols for people with high blood sugar. That's how um, how much this program works. If you do it, if you actually follow the plan, it's a very, very good plan for high blood sugars. It can also really help 
anchor low blood sugars. Remember that fluctuation, that roller coaster thing. It's it's a plan that's developed for um, just good metabolic control. Magnesium uh, is something to consider. Magnesium deficiency has been associated with insulin resistance and increased risk for type 2 diabetes. Um, magnesium also plays a role in adrenal health, the whole HPA axis picture. It supports progesterone. It lowers inflammation. It can improve sleep. I love magnesium. Um there's really so much more supplemental help that I use in my practice, that I use in your hormone revival. I do reserve that stuff for clinical practice rather than just kind of throwing out like, well, try this, internet stranger. Um, I'm not really a huge fan of that. Magnesium is one that I think that everybody could be on. I don't think it's a problem. Um, but we're going to get into a little bit more detail of the nutraceuticals and the botanicals and the vitamins and the specific nutrients um, in in my carb compatibility project this round. Um, so if that's something that you're looking to do, that more functional medicine approach, food as medicine approach, then join the CCP. You also have to sleep. Circadian rhythm, your body clock has a profound effect on glucose metabolism and insulin sensitivity. Sleep deprivation creates metabolic changes. Stress hormones go up, glucose goes up, insulin goes up, Hunger hormones go up. <laughs> the calorie equivalent of sleep deprivation is between 385 to 549 calories a day. Yo, yo, yo. You don't need to go on a restrictive calorie diet. You just need to go to sleep. Okay. That's a massive amount of calories. Sleep deprivation. So nuts. Get some sleep. A, um, a small study showed this a sleep de deprived group they slept for 1 hour and 20 minutes less than the control group each day consumed an average of 549 additional calories each day right so that's just an hour and 20 minutes less um another larger study um the sleep deprived deprived participants had a net energy gain of 385 calories a day which is equivalent to the calories about four and a half slices of bread right so you got to get your sleep on um, exercise is a big one. Exercise can improve insulin sensitivity. Weight training is really, if you have insulin sensitivity or excuse me, insulin resistance, you got to start weight training. And if your energy allows for it, you got to work in high intensity interval training, HIIT training, because it increases glucose demands, which is really good news if you have high blood sugar. Um, interval training also activates something called the AMPK pathway. This is the central pathway for managing blood sugar issues, for managing insulin, for managing a healthy metabolism. It also determines whether we burn fat or store fat. And the more intense the exercise, the faster you clear insulin and glucose from the blood and the longer the effects last. So both intensity and frequency matters. You got to really work hard for that. Um, and so that is why I was really thinking about how do, during this time, I really want to get 
across to people how important this stuff is. And I really want to help people get this under control. So what other resources could I throw at people? And that's why we included the weight training in the interval training into the CCP this round is so you have this one-stop shop to like reset your metabolism. I'm so grateful to Blaze Yoga and to Steamhouse Yoga. They really came through with some online content for you guys. It's going to be awesome. So you have to check it out. Um, so we're doing it, you know, we're doing diet, we're doing lifestyle, we're doing exercise. We get it all in one package for you. Now we're going to come back next week with part two, just because I mean, I'm already way over an hour for this one. And in part two, I'm going to talk about contraindications. Who shouldn't try intermittent fasting? Who should stay away from intermittent fasting? Um, hormones, talk about the thyroid, talk about leptin, how to start intermittent fasting. If you're like, hmm, okay, so like I'm doing a lot of this stuff already. I think that I could work in some fasting. How do I start? What is the way to approach it? We're going to get all into that goodness next week. So come back and check it out then. Audit your carbohydrate intake right? You've got to figure out how much carbs is appropriate for you. And I can't tell you that. Nobody can tell you that, right? It always depends. Um, some folks see a, a massive improvement simply by avoiding the processed whites, like your sugars, your breads, your pastas, your cookies. Um, some folks have to reduce their carbohydrate intake more dramatically than that. That's really why I created the four-week process of the Carb Compatibility Project, so you can find your particular threshold, help you dial that in. You also have to cancel sugar. This one kind of aggravates people, um, or they'll be like, well, what about what about natural sugars? You know, at the end of the day, when it comes to your blood sugar, sugar is sugar. Uh, when it comes to glucose and insulin, you always want your sugar wrapped up with some type of nutrient, with some type of fiber, with some, um, with some fat or some protein to slow down that, that blood sugar and subsequent insulin spike. But sugar is sugar is sugar is sugar. Um, so at least get out, you know, the candy and the sweets and the treats. Um, Proper sleep is huge. We talked about that last week. You need to make sure you're getting adequate sleep. We talked about different styles of exercise that can be really helpful. Um, walking after meals is a really good pro tip because it reduces postprandial glucose and insulin, which is like the your glucose response after you eat a meal. So you even just a 10, 20 minute walk, you don't have to go for like, you know, a power hour, just a gentle walk around the neighborhood is, um, it will suffice. We want to support our gut because the microbiome is essential for insulin signaling and blood sugar control. So we always want to get the gut, uh, gut health on lock, which is why I talk so much about the gut in my CCP. And then finally, we have the nutraceuticals, certain supplements that can be helpful to regulate blood sugar, magnesium, berberine, short chain fatty acids, chromium, cinnamon, B vitamins. We're going to dive into more of this in the CCP. But those are kind of like the big, big eight. And then we have intermittent fasting as kind of a maybe, because chances are intermittent fasting won't fix your metabolic problems all on its own, like as a standalone intervention, but it can work alongside other dietary and lifestyle changes, right? So with that said, we will talk about 
intermittent fasting as a weight loss loss tool, I sort of gently alluded to a study in last week's show that talked about how um, insul- uh, excuse me, intermittent fasting can get you beneficial health effects even without weight loss. Um, we in this study we saw that early time restricted feeding improves insulin sensitivity, improves blood pressure and improves oxidative stress, even without weight loss. Um, This study was looking at men who had prediabetes, okay? Now, um, these are all three things that we talked about last week, insulin sensitivity, blood pressure, and oxidative stress, and why they all kind of come together as something that's not so great. So pretty cool if we can have this tool to drop those things. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to lose weight to get healthy. These biomarkers improved irrespective of weight loss. Okay. So we know that early time-restricted feeding can increase insulin sensitivity. That's a good thing. It improves beta cell function. The beta cells, remember, are the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. We want them healthy and and functioning. It lowers blood pressure. It lowers oxidative stress. Um, It can lower the desire to eat in the evening if you're doing early intermittent fasting, which might facilitate weight loss. That's a hard might. Um, And then again, intermittent fasting can improve health even in the absence of weight loss. So what I'm always trying to do is to get people to not convolute the two things, right? Weight loss doesn't necessitate health, okay? Um, And you can get healthy without losing weight, right? So let's try to piece that out in our own brains. Um, But there is evidence that um, intermittent fasting can be an effective strategy for the treatment of overweight and obese people. Um, This is a meta-analysis of six different studies. So meta-analysis combines different studies. So it's kind of like, it's a really good one to look at. Um, It included different styles of fasting because remember we talked about last week, there's no like one set way to intermittent fast. There's even the experts in like the research researchers don't have like one set thing. They can even disagree about what intermittent fasting is. Um, but the study, the studies included alternate day fasting. So you're fasting one day, eating another, uh, fasting for two days and up to four days per week. And the duration of studies ranged from three to 12 months. Um, and I hope that when I'm talking about weight loss, using fasting as a tool for weight loss, I, I hope it's clear that I'm talking about significant weight loss, um, visceral adiposity. So that's the, the, the weight that we gather around our midsections, um, and metabolic dysfunction. I'm not talking about the five to 10 pounds that every woman in America has convinced herself that she needs to lose. Uh, there is a section on the Dutch test. So the Dutch test is a, is a test that I run in your hormone revival that looks at hormones and stress hormones. And there's a section that asks what best describes you. And then it goes on to say underweight at ideal weight, five to 20 pounds overweight or over 20 pounds overweight. And what do you think most women choose? They choose the five to 20 pounds overweight. The entire nation of the U.S. has convinced themselves that we have five to 20 perpetually, no matter what your weight is, no matter if you've lost weight, if you've gained weight, you're like, I've got that five to 20 pounds just 
hanging around, just hanging around all the time, right? You know what I'm talking about. You're like nodding your head along with me. Um, and then the Dutch also asks, are you struggling to lose weight? Yes or no? And most women check off. Yes, they are struggling to lose weight, right? The perpetual hunt for weight loss. That's like the holy grail. If I could only get those five to 20 pounds off my frame, my life will be fixed. All will be well, right? It's the lie that we've been fed. We are all collectively running around thinking this, right? Why do you think it is? Why do you think that that societal programming is thin equals good, leanness equals worthiness, weight loss is synonymous with health? Why do you think that is? Do you think it has something to do with a $67 billion weight loss industry? Booming, booming industry. Do you think it has something to do with that? Sure as shit does. Because if we all collectively change the way that we thought about our bodies and the way we thought about health and the way we thought about weight, the way we thought about weight loss, that industry wouldn't exist. You wouldn't have somebody sliding into your DMs all the time promising you they'll fix your their life by giving you a shake. $130 shake? I'm going to save you. Nope. I call BS on that. We have to reject these lies. We have to unpack our you know, our, our fat phobia, our collective fat phobia. I do have some, um, if you're kind of like, yeah, I like what you're putting down. I like what you're saying. Rah, rah. Um, I do have some accounts and people to follow happy shapes, Naomi. Um, she's been on the show episode 77. She talked to us about opting out of diet culture and cultivating self-trust. I have, um, wellness lately is another great one. Um, so these, you can find them on Instagram as well and, or listen to the podcast episodes, uh, that they're on episode 79, when you're scared to stop dieting. That was a good one. And then Dr. Jillian Murphy. I love her. She was on episode 69, morals, stigma, shame, and food, the power of intuitive eating. Um, so check out their stuff, you know, either listen to the podcast or follow them on Instagram. They're putting out some good things. Linda Bacon, Dr. Linda Bacon is phenomenal with all of this. Um, so some good resources for you. Um, so and you, I do want you to, to kind of question yourself, like, is your interest in intermittent fasting? What brought you here? What brought you to this episode? If you're approaching this from only a weight loss perspective, you then have to ask yourself, do you actually have weight to lose? And if the answer is yes, have you been trying to lose weight for a long time? Or quite frankly, if the answer is no, have you been trying to wait to lose weight for a long time? If so, journey back to episode 65. It was a whole episode on weight loss where I really kind of broke it down to brass tacks for you. So those are all some things to think about as we as we navigate this question of should I try intermittent fasting or should I not? Um, the other thing I want to caution you against is or at least put on your radar is that restriction can lead to binge. Actually, that episode with wellness lately, episode 79, we got into this a little bit, but it almost always leads to to binging. And even if it's not caloric restriction, any type of mindset restriction can lead to binge. So if you're, you know, if you're like, damn, I just want breakfast today, but I'm intermittent fasting. So I can't because eating before XYZ time is really bad. Um, so I'm going to just, even though I'm hungry, I'm not going to eat, right? Even though I really want to eat, I'm not going to eat. That's a restrictive mindset. So that can, uh, that can kind of 
net out after a little while you kind of like white knuckle it and then all of a sudden you're you're led in the other direction where you're potentially overeating calories and then what happens that self-flagellation comes in i'm bad i'm rotten something's wrong with me i can't control myself i don't have any willpower it's me it's a me thing no it's not it's the restriction thing you remove the restriction the binging can oftentimes um dissipate so Think about that, especially if you have a history with with restriction and or binging. This the the intermittent fasting can be a real trigger for that, really really bad. Um, and if you're using intermittent fasting as a way to slash calories, as a way to attempt weight loss, you're like, well, if I just take a meal out every day, I'm going to slash calories and we'll lose weight, right? Remember that your metabolism will respond to that decrease in calories. It slows things down. That's what your metabolism does. It's kind of like a, a yo-yo. Um, it like, you know, bounces back. Um, so if you're restricting calories, your metabolism slows, it's going to become much harder to sustain that weight loss over time. Um, so keep all of that in mind. Again, if you're using this as a weight loss tool, there's a lot to think about before you um, approach this. Now let's get into like some real contraindications where I go as far to say like, do not intermittent fast if you fall into one of these categories. And the very first one I'm going to start with is any type of history uh, with any type of eating disorder. When we struggle with eating disorders, we, we essentially lose the ability to engage with food appropriately or to engage with our body's signals. And what happens is that rules can override what your body is telling you. you the yes, no food rules or the time, you know, I don't eat until 11 a.m. hard stop. There's no wiggle room. So even if your body's communicating to, I need to eat, you're like, not till 11, not until that clock says 11 a.m. So rules, that's what I mean by rules can override what your body is telling you. And you might not even know. You might be so used to this. This might be so much the norm for you that you're not even aware of this. It might not even be an intentional thing or a conscious thought. Your ability to hear your body's communication might just be offline from, from years of overriding it. So for example, you might be experiencing deep fatigue or poor sleep or reduced capacity to recover from exercise or menstrual cycle irregularities, but you're so focused on the rules, I am intermittent fasting, that you either ignore these signals or you just don't see them as a problem. And I will say that intermittent fasting is kind of like the sweetheart right now. Uh, a lot of doctors are recommending it to people. And that might be great for some people. It really might be. But if you have a history of eating disorders or restrictive eating patterns and your practitioner recommends intermittent fasting to you, that that's a problem to me. You got to speak up about that because the risk for triggering old behaviors and old thought patterns far outweighs any of the health benefits you might reap from intermittent fasting. So I'm going to I'm going to propose that you be your own advocate here and if somebody recommends that to you you say not appropriate for me doc what else do you have? Um postpartum you you really need to get in the nutrients that your body needs. Um, and then the other thing is time-restricted eating is kind of based on circadian rhythm and chances are yours are hopelessly off in the postpartum period. I know mine were for two years. So it's just like we're going to talk a little bit about stressors um, in, a, in a bit and... Y- 
postpartum is a very stressful time emotionally, like psychologically, but physically as well. There's a great physical demand put on your body. So you don't want to then go in and um, layer on an additional stressor to the body. And fasting is a stressor to the body. So be be really ca- cautious against that. And especially if someone's coming at you being like, you should intermittent fast to lose the ba- baby weight, them, them be fighting words in my book. Send them my way. I'll take care of them for you, okay? That's when I say pick on somebody your own size. <laughs> send them to me. Um, the other thing is if you're breastfeeding, you need fuel. You do not need to restrict your fuel at this time. And want to really try to get people to, to wrap their heads around what I'm about to say. We have to earn the things that require a big energetic load from us, like breastfeeding, like intense exercise, like our overpacked schedules, like our business hustle, all of these things. And how do we earn them? We earn them by putting in the energy. We're putting in the fuel to do these things. So breastfeeding, huge demand on the body, right? We don't want to restrict fuel during that time. Um, And I kind of see this play out clinically because I'll have clients with hormonal dysfunction. And maybe the reason that they have that hormonal dysfunction in the first place is because they've been restricting for so long that their body is trying to compensate in another way. And it becomes, okay, well, I have this hormonal imbalance. So should I fast or should I do keto or should I do XYZ diet in order to fix my hormones? And what I always say to people is if your hormones are out of balance because of restriction, then restriction is not going to balance your hormones, right? We have to bring some degree of common sense into into our food choices. The other place that I would say um, uh, fasting can be contraindicated is if you have adrenal issues, whether that's adrenal fatigue, HPA axis issues, you know, I've talked about this a lot on the show. Um, they It's often tangled up with blood sugar issues. It can be pretty hard to regulate your blood sugar if your adrenals are a mess. And kind of the, the reverse is that is... The reverse of that is true. Um, but especially if you have low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, remember that cortisol, your stress response, is a glucocorticoid. One of its re- jobs is to regulate blood sugar. So if you're skipping a meal uh, in order to fast, your blood sugar might plummet. If you don't have good metabolic control and flexibility, your blood sugar drops and then cortisol has to swoop in to raise blood sugar back up. So that's a stressful reaction in the body. Um, And that's the last thing that we want to do if the body's already under significant amount of stress. So um, I usually, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend somebody struggling with adrenal is- issues to fast in most cases. Of course, there's always going to be exceptions to that rule. Um, f- you have to think about how much stress your body is under. Fasting increases stress hormones. It, it just, it just does. Um, it's a stressor to the body. So you have to assess how full is your stress bathtub. This concept was first introduced on the show in episode 63, strategies for managing burnout. And then again, I, I talked about it in relationship to weight loss in episode 65, the weight loss episode. Um, 
This is when intermittent fasting can backfire. If your stress bathtub is already full, it's locked and loaded, right? There's no more room and the faucet is gushing. You can't just dump in another stressor like fasting. This is when it backfires. This is when you do not get the results that you are after. Um, when you're under stress, like I was saying, you can be in a hypoglycemic state, low blood sugar. You can also be in a hyperglycemic uh, state, high blood sugar. You can bounce between the two. It can be an either or both situation. Um, so I wouldn't recommend throwing intermittent fasting on the, on that. Uh, ultimately, what you have to do first is stop the erratic eating, right? Eat at the same time throughout the day. Stop skipping meals regulate your blood sugar, basically all the principles we talk about in the Carb Compatibility Project. And if your body is already under stress, we don't want diet to be a stressor. We know that the body does need some external stress in order to cultivate resiliency, like whether that's exercise or, you know, sauna or, you know, whatever it is. But but we we don't want that that external stressor to come from the diet if the body's already under stress. We don't want to further stress ourselves through food or dietary interventions. It's just going to blow back up in your face. It really will. It might feel good for a little bit. And then you, there's going to be this like um, this period where you're like, well, what's happening? And you can start to see negative side effects. Another Another way to, or excuse me, another um, situation where it would be contraindicated is if you're at an ideal body weight for your body, or you're even at a low body weight, if you don't have much body fat on you, or you have low leptin levels. So leptin is a hormone that's made by the fat cells, and it's also made in response to dietary fat. It needs some type of fat around, whether it's coming through the food or it's on the body. It, we know it as our satiety hormone. That's what we, most of us think of leptin as because it inhibits hunger. But leptin can also influence things beyond just appetite and metabolism. It can influence the brain, the thyroid, menstrual cycles. If leptin runs too low, it can interfere with ovulation because low leptin is telling the brain this body is not fed, right? There's not enough dietary fat and or there's not enough body fat on the person. Um, so it, it basically, any any signals um, of underfed to the body start to slow things down from a hormonal perspective, sex hormones, right? ovulation, uh, menstruation, thyroid hormones. Um, and if you have low body weight or you have low leptin or you have both, fasting is going to even further lower those leptin levels because there's no dietary fat or there's no body fat to increase the level. So again, it's going to send those signals of underfed that goes directly to the hypothalamus in the brain. And the hypothalamus then goes on to communicate that message to the thyroid via the HPT axis, to the adrenals via the HPA axis, to the ovaries via the HPG axis right? So it's like this downstream effect of like, alert the presses. This person is underfed. This person is under-resourced. Um, so remember in last week, I was talking about a fat fast, doing a fat fast with some fat and some protein. It might be a better option for you if you're absolutely adamant, hell-bent on fasting. Um, doing that would be better than just a straight-up fast with nothing, uh, but I would recommend just kind of no fasting at all. 
And then we have thyroid issues um, for all of the reasons that I just talked about. I don't need to go into much more detail of the physiology of it, but again, you know, hypothalamus, if it's under, if, if it is hearing signals of underfed, that's going to talk to the thyroid. The thyroid's going to slow shit down. It's going to, it wants to uh, conserve your energy because energy's not coming in. That's what it's thinking. Energy's not coming in. So we got to use all the energy we have. So I'm going to slow things down in order to make that happen. It's like the thermostat of the metabolism, your thyroid. Um, this I, I, I mentioned last week, but I'm going to bring it up again because I think it's interesting. Um, Wilson's temperature syndrome. A lot of people aren't into this. I'm kind of like dipping my toe in it a little bit to be like, how do I feel about this? What's the deal with this? But um, it's basically low T3, active, low active thyroid hormone. And what this doctor discovered or figured out for himself or what he's seen clinically play out is that it tends to be more common in patients whose ancestors have survived famine, like the Irish, the American Indian, Scottish, Welsh, Russian. Um, and what he's noticed is that there's almost this genetic predisposition to the body responding unfavorably to food scarcity. If your ancestors have survived famine, your body's going to go into conservation mode really quickly. Now, under conditions of severe stress, things like divorce, the death of a loved one, childbirth, the metabolism can slow down as a coping mechanism. Um, and then after the stress has passed, the metabolism is, to post, is supposed to get back online, but sometimes it doesn't, and the body gets locked in, gets stuck in conservation mode. And so you can have um, a lot of hypothyroid symptoms because of this. And I just thought that the the link between ancestors surviving famine and the predisposition to this condition is pretty pretty wild and pretty notable here. Um, and then women of menstruating age, I kind of have a question mark next to this in my notes as like, maybe question mark? Like, I'm not totally sure. I don't want to say definitively, if you're a woman of menstruating age, you can't fast. But when it comes to intermittent fasting, women are usually more sensitive than men. And we're not really sure of the exact reason. There's a theory that it's because women have more of a hormone called kispepsin, or excuse me, kispepin, peptin. It's really hard to say. <laughs> kiss peptin, which creates uh, greater sensitivity to fasting. So I will say clinically, I've certainly seen the negative effects of fasting on hormone tests. I've, I've for sure seen that. So my clinical experience certainly echoes this. Um, it's just like what I've talked about here on the show a bazillion times, perceived states of starvation impact hormones. It impacts your ovulation, which then impacts progesterone production. It impacts your menstruation. It impacts sleep. It impacts fertility, right? So you can't fast and drop your daily caloric, caloric intake too low. Um, we know that caloric restriction creates stress in the body. It suppresses thyroid function. It suppresses thyroid conversion. It suppresses female sex hormones. So if you're going to fast, you have to make sure that you're not also dropping your calories. You need to eat according to uh, your caloric needs. You can't fast and dramatically under eat. That's going to send your female body into a tizzy. And you might not see the effects of it right away, but you will eventually. Um, I had a question, a listener question from Tiffany 
who asked, how do you do intermittent fasting and still meet your caloric needs? You still hit your caloric needs, right? You just do them in a smaller time frame. It's not like you're just skipping a meal. You're, you're making up for that in your allotted, um, window of eating. Um, you might still eat three meals just in a shorter period of time, or you might eat two larger meals, but you're still getting your calories in. Fasting plus caloric restriction in a, in a menstruating female is, is really pretty, pretty gnarly. Um, you know, some people might be able to do it, but I haven't seen evidence of that. That's for sure. All right. So where do we begin? If you want to try it, where should you even start? How do you dip your toe into the world? Let's say you've been, you've heard a lot of great things about intermittent fasting. You really want to try it. Where do you begin? The number one first thing that you need to do is manage your blood sugar first so you don't have wild blood sugar crashes and so you can prevent that adrenal involvement in your blood sugar. Um, this is why a lot of people will start with a ketogenic diet or a lower carb diet and then they'll try intermittent fasting from there. Um, Datis Karazian, uh, who I've talked about a lot on the show before, I, I or certainly referenced him on the show, he says that once in ketosis, intermittent fasting is much easier to do. He went on to say, this is from an actual lecture from him, fasting with adrenal issues and blood sugar issues can be very difficult. When you're using ketones for energy, fasting is non-traumatic. And then that, those are his exact words. And so what I took from that is, huh, well, if you're not in ketosis and you're not using ketones, fasting is quite traumatic for the body, right? So it's not just me saying these things. There's a lot of well-respected um, physicians and, and other, other people saying, saying similar stuff. Now, I have found that you don't have to go all the way keto um, in order to have success, but I would recommend you doing, um, you know, going through something like my four week carb compatibility process so you can regulate your blood sugar first and then try intermittent fasting from there. I wouldn't just go, especially if you kind of ride the blood sugar roller coaster, intermittent fasting can be pretty, pretty hard on you. So I would, I would stabilize yourself first. Uh, the program, the CCP utilizes plenty of fat, protein and fiber to help stabilize your blood sugar the best. And while and it also supports the microbiome, uh, your gut microbiome, which is a key player in metabolic health. So you're kind of hitting it from a couple of different angles. So doing that program before attempting intermittent fasting can help to prevent that stress response. Um, you also learn how to feed yourself appropriately, adequate calories, deep nutrients, all the things that I just mentioned and was just talking about. So there's there's less of a chance that your body is going to go into freak out mode. Um, some different fasting schedules to try. There is kind of a specific schedule that I have women of menstruating age follow, so it's less likely to affect hormones. Um, I use that clinically, but here are some different things that you can tinker around with. One is eating from 8 to 6, so 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. That's your eating window, and you don't eat outside of that. Uh, 12 to 6 is another one. So you basically eat your first meal of the day at lunch. Do not love this one for menstruating females. Just going to put it right out there. This is a hard one. Um, 
You can eat normally five days of the week and then two days per week eat 700 calories. So that's kind of like that fasting mimicking diet a little bit. You can eat normally five days a week and then two non-consecutive days. You can fast completely. These are all different approaches. I am not recommending any of them to be crystal clear. I don't want you to walk away from this episode being like, Erin told me to, to not eat two days out of the week. Uh, no, I didn't. So listen to what I'm saying. These are just different schedules that people um, that people do to get similar results of uh, of intermittent fasting. Um, what I like is uh, Dr. Will Cole talks about this. He refers to it as crescendo fasting. Um, you fast two non consecutive days a week. So you know, not like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. In Tuesday and a Wednesday days that are not touching each other. Um, during the fasting days, you're only doing light exercise. So you're not going hard and heavy. You're certainly not going to do like a hit training on the days that you're fasting and you fast between 12 to 16 hours. Now this is kind of what I help women dial in, like where they start, how do they know if they're, um, like, when to increase it. But I would start with 12 hours, see how you do. If you do okay, then maybe you can bump it up. But I really wouldn't go more than 16 hours. Um, If you've done two weeks of this and you're like, okay, like two weeks of two days non, um, non-consecutive and you feel okay. um, And I will talk about like things to look for, like signs that intermittent fasting isn't working for you. I'll talk about that at the end. Um, then maybe you can add an extra day, kind of work your way in that way. All right. Um, and again, if you're, I just want to, I want to follow up just so I'm not sending mixed signals here. If you're a menstruating woman, woman who fits the picture of what we talked about last week, the metabolic syndrome picture, I might be singing a different tune, right? This is extremely individualized, extremely, extremely, extremely individualized. All right, let's get into some listener questions. Um, our little health journey asked, first off, you're awesome. Thank, uh, love your passion and thank you for all the work you put into your content. Secondly, my husband thinks everyone should at least try intermittent fasting. He thinks it would solve a lot of health problems and it seems to have it seems to have for him personally, which is awesome. But I've been told in the past by medical professionals that I shouldn't fast. On the pod, can you go into specific detail or of what are good and bad candidates for intermittent fasting and what someone like me could do to get some of the benefits of time-restricted eating while also listening to my body and eating what it is telling me to eat? Now, we've already unpacked a lot of her question, but I, I pulled this one and read it out loud because I love it. Um, because it showcases an extremely common mindset, which is this diet or technique worked for me and therefore it must work for everyone. I wanted to call that out, highlight that specifically. That's a fallacy and it gets us into a lot of trouble. Now, I'm not overly worried when the average Joe is doing this and saying this. For you know this woman's husband, for example, it sounds like he found something that worked really well for him. He's passionate about it, so he wants to share it with others, right? It's coming from a good place. The trouble 
is when people try to build a business around that. It just shows lack of experience, lack of understanding, lack of expertise, which is why when nutrition practitioners or coaches start saying things like this, I tell people to run in the other direction. Just because something worked for one person does not mean you build a business on that one thing and assign it to all people. Give me a break. Um, anyone worth their weight will tell you that that not all practices will apply to all people. So hopefully we've already cleared up why fasting is not appropriate for all people. Um, and for, for this listener uh, in, in particular, in particular I, I'm always going to be an advocate for listening to my body and eating what it's telling me to eat. Unless there's metabolic damage, unless there's insulin resistance, leptin resistance, you might have to retrain your body to understand hunger cues. But for the average person, you got to listen to your body. So to answer your question, how to get the benefits of time-restricted eating without shutting down your body's messages, get good quality sleep each night. Support your circadian rhythm through sleep hygiene. Exercise regularly. Um, try to eat at the same time every single day. If you can exercise at a similar time every day, incorporate some high intensity interval training, incorporate weight lifting, lift heavy weights. That's really supportive of insulin sensitivity. Uh, keep your blood sugar regulated through diet. Those are the big heavy hitters. You know, so many people are focused on intermittent fasting to try to level up, but I got to like bring you back to baseline. Are you doing these things? If you're doing these things, if you have these things on lock, you probably don't need to intermittent fast. All right. You could try a 12 hour eating fasting window and see how you do with that. Like I was just talking about. Um, and if you do great, great. And if you don't, no, no worries. Do, do all the other stuff. Okay. Loa Anderson asked, people keep recommending intermittent fasting, even OMAD, and it sounds way too challenging for me. Now, when I accidentally skip a meal, it feels like my whole body is stressed out. I don't know if my worry is legit. Can't wait for that episode. So first of all, OMAD stands for one meal a day. I'm not going to talk about it on this show. Thank you, next. Um, quote, I want to share th this quote from um, a really good book called The Body Keeps the Score. And her question sort of reminded me of this. Um, being a patient rather than a participant in one's healing process alienates people from their sense of self. Being a patient rather than a participant in one's healing process alienates people from their sense of self. If you're letting other people's recommendations override what your body is clearly conveying to you, then you're not being an active participant in your own healing process. And you will continue to come back to this place time and time again, reaching outside of yourself for the answer, saying, here's what my body is telling me. I'm not going to listen. I'm going to ask somebody else what I should do with my body, right? You are alienating yourself from your sense of self. Don't be the patient. Be the active participant. You're telling me when I accidentally skip a meal, it feels like my whole body is stressed out. That's valid. Listen to that girl. Um, this is a sign. 
I would say if, if you can't if you can't skip a meal without your body freaking out, that's a that's a sign of poor metabolic control, um, a massive sign of low blood sugar. If you can't skip a meal without adrenal involvement, like without that stress, like feeling that stress in your body, you don't have a great handle on blood blood sugar. So I would really work on that. You can do it through the carb compatibility project or otherwise, but that's like a big thing to dial in. And then quiet down the white noise. Nobody else needs to tell you what to do with your body. You've got to listen to your body first. Uh, another question was, how do you transition from intermittent fasting to a more typical eating schedule? Now, this is another one. You can see why I pulled some of these questions, right? I'm going to kind of put this person on the spot and use them as an example. The obvious answer to how do I stop intermittent fasting is to eat earlier in the day, right? That's pretty basic. There's no magic formulaic process. Um, but the way the question is formula formulated showcases three things. One, permission seeking with food. Two, lack of trust in our own bodies. And three, getting trapped in rigid food rules. If this person is asking how to stop fasting, then chances are something in their body is telling them that fasting isn't working for them. If it was working great, they wouldn't be uh, wondering about how to stop, right? For the most part, for most people, transitioning from one eating schedule to the next is not going to completely derail your body. We have to put more faith in our bodies and trust them for the resilient specimens that they are. Our bodies have a very real capability to bounce back. Unfortunately, we've all been lied to and we were all taught that we must permission seek for our food. So when I read this question, I heard something in my body is telling me the way I'm eating isn't working. Instead of heeding those messages, I'm going to seek the answers outside myself, right? Very similar to the previous question. Getting trapped in rigid rules, if you're so rigidly clutching to intermittent fasting, this is what I do. This is how I eat. This is the way I live. That you're disengaging from your body's signals or you're scared to stop intermittent fasting, then that's a problem. Um, I get a lot of question questions asking, or I got a lot of questions asking, um, who is intermittent fasting not for? Like where where are the where like who should not do this, right? And and this is something I would be on the lookout for. This mentality, this mindset. This would be an unhealthy response to intermittent fasting, feeling like you can't or shouldn't stop even if you want to, like you can't get off the hamster wheel. And unfortunately, I think it's a it's a pretty common response, which is the one reason I don't love intermittent fasting for many people and, and why I hate when people make blanket statements about fasting. I think it's irresponsible at best and criminal at worst. Um, that might've been a little like, you know, a little bit uh, hyperbolic, but I, when I when I see women who are promoting fasting, like as a part of like an MLM type thing, I lose my damn minds. I re I, minds both of them. I lose them both. They both they both drop right out of my ear and roll away. I, I just I feel like you're building a business and making money on the back of somebody else, like essentially breaking their metabolism and ruining their hormones. Like that's what I meant by criminal. I, I get really ragey and cagey about that one. Um, many of us, especially those of us with a checkered or disordered past, we lose the ability to engage with our food and our body signals, including our body's stress signals. So when things go pear-shaped, 
Like, let's say you're experiencing fatigue or anxiety in the morning without food, right? You're not eating and you're, you're feeling really anxious and like not yourself. Um, or you're relying on coffee to mask your low energy or you're relying on coffee to mask your hunger. You're not admitting to yourself that you're actually hungry because you're an intermittent faster. Uh, Instead of realizing this isn't working, we tend towards that self-flagellation, blaming ourselves, seeing ourselves as the issue. And this is especially true if you're doing it in one of those groups or you're being led by a coach to do it. You see it's working for them. It's working for everybody else. Why can't it work for me? What's wrong with me? Um, I do have, if if you want to hear more of me talk more about this, stuff, if this is helpful for you on Instagram, um, I do have a dieting highlights, you know, the highlight section. If you go to, if you go to the the page, there's like the highlights at the top, the circles. If you click on dieting, you, I, you, I have done many different iterations of this same type of dialogue. And I think it can be helpful, especially for those of us who are trying to drag ourselves out of the diet mindset. It can be helpful to kind of bathe in these messages because it reminds us like, oh, we're not crazy. Like, oh, this is legitimate. Oh, okay. Somebody's giving me permission to opt out of this nonsense. Um, okay. Finally, before we close out, some signs that it's not working. I just mentioned a few of them, but agitation, feeling kind of like aggro and on edge is a good sign that it's not working for you. If you're getting an uptick in anxiety or mood issues, headaches, fatigue, like I said just a moment ago, relying on more coffee, either because you need the energy or you're like too afraid to eat. So you're leaning on coffee instead of an actual meal. Um, If it's starting to affect your sleep negatively, if it's affecting your exercise tolerance, your ability to exercise has gone down. If you're experiencing any hair loss or if you've noticed any cycle changes, like you lose your cycle or your cycle lengths change. Those are all kind of wake up signals from your body that what you're doing isn't working. So it's time to change. No big deal. We just got to pivot, right? Pivot. Um, All right, you guys, thanks for tuning in. I always appreciate you being here. I got a little bit uh, wild at some points, but this stuff kind of makes me mad. So uh, the dragon came out on a couple of occasions. So remember, I changed my handle on Instagram. I'm now at the.functional spelled with a K, just like the podcast, dot nutritionist. So follow me over there. I love to engage with all y'all. And yeah, that's it. Love you guys. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.